Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, we are in the New Testament. We're studying verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and I invite your attention there now. Luke chapter 6 is our text, verses 12 through 16. Title of the message today, Christ Exit Strategy. You remember last week we studied how the opposition against Jesus was becoming more vocal and more pronounced, particularly as it related to a religious group known as the Pharisees. In fact, these Pharisees were following Jesus around, constantly trying to catch him in a sin or a fault. And they, of course, were frustrated in that endeavor because Jesus is sinless and he never failed and he's God. Therefore, he knew their wicked heart and their strategies and he was always one step ahead. And every time he thwarted one of their diabolical plans, they became angrier and angrier. Verse 11 here in chapter 6 sort of summarizes the atmosphere around the Pharisees. But they themselves were full of rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Well, we know what the conclusion of that rage was. They had Jesus crucified on made-up charges. Well, of course, that was no surprise to Jesus. After all, that's why he came to earth, to die on the cross, an atoning sacrifice for sinners. In fact, that's what his mission, he was sent by the Father to do that very thing. That's why the book of Hebrews refers to Jesus as having an apostleship. That's what we're studying today, the calling of the apostles. An apostleship is a mission that is given by another for someone to accomplish. And Jesus accomplished his mission perfectly. And this pressure against him, as I said, was intensifying. And so it was at this time, Luke says, that he put together his exit strategy. Not too long ago, I was in an airport in another state, and I ran into an old friend I hadn't seen in a long time. And we began to talk, and he told me about what was going on in his life. And just a few sentences into the conversation, a, a big grin came on his face, and he said, you know, my son's working for me now. He began to tell me how wonderful his son was doing and all the things that he was doing. And uh, you could see the joy on his face that only a father who was proud could have. And I said before we parted company that it, it looks like you have your exit strategy in place. Jesus' exit strategy seems very strange to our perspective. And it was this. He chose 12 very common men nearly all from the same little obscure part of the world called Galilee, and he entrusted them with the most important truth the world would ever know. And here's the kicker. He didn't have a contingency plan. <laughs> that was it. These 12 men were it. Paul summarized that plan in his letter to the young pastor Timothy when he said, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And here we are 2,000 years later. And that good news has been transferred from the apostles to the first century saints all the way down to this good day. And so with that uh, background, let's read our text this morning, Luke 6, 12. And it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And then day came and he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Simon whom he called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, 
and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. Now at this monumental moment in His ministry, Jesus persisted in prayer. I need to confess to you at this point that the prayer life of the Lord Jesus has always been somewhat mysterious to me. How is it that God needs to pray to God? I don't know, but we know that He did. We know that in His humanity, Jesus totally submitted His will to the Father. And so He found the need to steal away often from the crowds for times of meditation and prayer to the Father. And I think He did that for a couple of reasons. One, He was modeling a prayer life for us. The obvious truth is if Jesus felt the need to pray, we should, right? But I think this was more than an example to us. I think He intensely craved this time alone with His Father. And so He persisted in prayer. Now the Greek word in this verse is very specific. It speaks of an activity that lasts through the night, all the way till the sun comes up. Now some of us grew up going to all night prayer services and when we did we sang some of those songs we sang this morning. Lily of the Valley and Revive Us Again. But in those all night prayer meetings usually leading up to revival meetings, usually it went something like this. Each family was assigned a 30 minute or at the most an hour section of the day. And you came up at your time to pray and then the next person took your place and all the way around the clock. But Jesus prayed by Himself through the night. And when I read verses that Jesus prayed all the way through the night, it always has two very different responses that are elicited in me. Number one is depression. Because I don't know if you're like me, but I, I find it very difficult to pray for protracted periods of time. One reason is it's so busy in our world, right? And noisy, and it's difficult living where we do to get away. But really that's just an excuse. I find it difficult to prioritize my day well enough to spend the time that's needed in prayer. And so you can pray for me that I do a better job of that. And the, the second is inspiration. I know I should pray more and more intently like Jesus. And so I'm inspired by the Lord. If He needs to pray, how much more do I? Martin Luther said that his day was so busy that he dare not, not start the day with protracted times of prayer. We are all encouraged to be persistent in prayer by Jesus. If you'll turn over just a few pages to Luke chapter 18, you'll see a very familiar parable there beginning in verse 1 about Jesus told about the need to persist in prayer. It's the parable of what he called an unrighteous judge. Now compared to the righteous judge of the universe, Jehovah God, all judges are comparatively unrighteous. But this was a particularly unrighteous judge. The scripture says he, he didn't fear God or men. Jesus told a story. He said, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. That is to be persistent in prayer, saying, in a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God or did not respect man. And there was a widow in the city and she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out. <laughs> and so because she was persistent, this unrighteous judge says, look, I'll answer your request if you'll just leave me alone. Now, Jesus was not saying, 
God gets worn out by our much asking. After all, He's God, right? In fact, He invites us, based upon our relationship to Jesus, the fact that we are now in Christ, to come with boldness into His presence. That's the point. Here's an unrighteous judge who was willing to grant a request just through persistence. How much more so our Heavenly Father, who loves us so much that He sent Jesus to die for us, is willing to answer our prayer if we will just ask. The point is that God is much wiser and more caring than this judge. We should persist knowing He loves us and will always do what is right. Well, Jesus was persisting in prayer and He went up on the mountain to, to pray. Now, you know I hope that you can pray anywhere. If you don't believe that, read the Old Testament book of Jonah. He prayed in the belly of a fish. God heard His prayer. Jesus taught His apostles to go to their prayer closet to pray. And the point is simply this. We need times of, a, of being alone with the Lord. Get by yourself to pray. Minimize distractions and interruptions. And to do that, you have to be very serious about guarding that time. Now, there's something about being in nature that is helpful. He said he went up on the mountain. You saw the video of our teenagers up in the Ozark Mountains. I, and I have found that to be true in my own life. It's, I love to spend time in our national parks. And I always come away spiritually refreshed. Some of you remember years ago before Keller is what it is now, the surrounding countryside around here was very pastoral. And I had a place out west of town here in what is now Woodland Springs subdivision on the very top of that hill that I used to go on my lunch hour and pray. And I could see this area, 360 degree panorama, and I had read about all the developments that were coming. And I would pray for all of you that would be living there. Very sweet times of prayer. You need to get you a spot like that. And you say, well, Pastor, you don't, you don't know my schedule. I don't have time for that. I can't get away. Well, let me, let me tell you a little story about a woman named Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley lived in another time, but uh, she had 19 children, nine of whom died in childhood. Ten survived. Two of those were special needs. She had a very stubborn and obstinate husband who couldn't handle money. They were always in debt. She had a daughter that was rebellious. But Susanna Wesley loved the Lord. And every day during her dedicated prayer times, she would take her apron that she wore constantly to do her housework and she would pull it up around her head wherever she was. And the ten children knew not to bother mommy. This was her prayer time. You can have an alone time with the Lord even if you're a stay-at-home mom. And by the way, that's a plug for stay-at-home moms. I mean that with all my heart. There's not a more important thing in the world you can do than invest in those children. And one of the things you can do is to pray for them. You've probably not heard of Susanna Wesley, but you've probably heard of two of her sons, Charles and John, who became two of the greatest soul winners in the history of this country. Jesus prayed. He got by Himself to do it. Secondly, He, he prayed expectantly. That's why He didn't pray for a few minutes and quit, because nothing happened. He knew it would happen. He was sort of like Jacob of the Old Testament who wrestled with God all night and wouldn't let Him go until He blessed Him. And when he got the answer, when he got his direction, he was ready to appoint his apostles. That's most likely what he was praying for. Lord, of all of these disciples, which one of them should be set aside? Now these men were first called disciples. The word disciple simply means follower or student. We sometimes call the twelve the disciples. 
they were originally disciples, but there were hundreds, if not thousands, of followers of Jesus. You remember, everywhere he went, people followed him around. In fact, at one of those meetings, he fed 5,000 of them with a few loaves and fishes. So there came a time in his life, and by the way, Jesus was not under any illusion that all of those were true followers. These were people that overtly and externally said, yes, we will follow Jesus. Jesus knew that their, their hearts were not right. Only a few truly loved him. And so he began to teach some hard things. And one of the things he began to teach was that, that unless you eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, that you can't be his disciple. And the scripture said, from that point on, many people turned back and stopped following him. And so he goes to these 12 men and he says, are you also going to leave me at this time? And, and Peter said, Lord, where would we go? <laughs> you alone have the words of life. And so this, this here in Luke 6 is the record of his setting them aside as apostles. And so what Jesus has chosen to do very intentionally is, yes, he's going to preach to the masses when they come, but he's going to invest the lion's share of his time in a small group of people, these 12 men, who the scripture calls apostles. And an apostle is a sent out one, a representative of another, an ambassador would be a good synonym of an apostle. And in the Bible, we find two categories of apostles. This first category is the 12, those who held the office of apostle, the foundation of the church. Paul describes it this way, Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now remember, Jesus had an apostleship. He was sent from heaven by God to be the Savior of the world. And these apostles then, in turn, were entrusted by Jesus with this message to go out into the world and to take it. And they did. But of course, one of them, as Luke points out, Judas Iscariot, became a traitor. And again, Jesus was not surprised by that. This was all within his sovereign plan. Now, Paul says the apostles are the foundation of the church. And you don't have to be an expert in construction. You know the foundation comes first, right? You don't build the house and then put the foundation in the attic. The foundation, by definition, is the basis upon which everything else is built. Now, you think about the things we teach here in our church. Are they not the teachings of the apostles. Yes. And, and many who wrote the gospels who were not apostles were in direct contact with the apostles, men like Luke who were studying, and they got firsthand knowledge. And, and so that news, as Paul told Timothy, is passed down from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And yet uh, there are some today who want to reclaim this title of apostleship. There's a movement called the New Apostolic Reformation, or the NAR, some of you might have uh, read about. Uh, some of these men, mostly in the charismatic movement, are claiming for themselves the title of apostle. And along with that, they're claiming that they received direct revelation, just as Peter did. And don't you believe it? Okay? Now, the scripture says that uh, these apostles were 12 in number. There's no indication of the scriptures that when they died, others took that title. Now, there's another category of apostles that are mentioned in the New Testament. And these are what I call apostles, little a. And all of us 
can be described as apostles. It simply means sent one, and it's where we get the English word missionary. That word apostolos in Latin was translated as missio, and where we get the word missionary. And so in a sense, all of us are called to be apostles or missionaries, because we believe and teach here that the Great Commission is not just for the 12, but for all believers, right? So we are commissioned, there's that word again, to go and make disciples of all nations. And so in some case, all Christians are apostles, but only the 12 had the office of apostles. I think you understand that. Now, there was an episode that's recorded in Acts chapter one that clarifies this. And so let's turn over there now quickly. I think it's important that we see this. Acts chapter one, verse 22. You remember Acts chapter one is really part two of the Gospel of Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and then he wrote what happened next after Jesus ascended into heaven and that's the book of Acts. And there's sort of in chapter one a transition from Jesus' earthly ministry to the first century church. And so you know that the 12th apostle that was mentioned there, Judas Iscariot, after he became a traitor committed suicide. And so his office was vacated, he left his post. And so it seemed right for the other apostles that someone else takes his place. And so he says in verse 21, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us in all the time that the Lord Jesus went in out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until this day when he was taken up from us, one of us must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen. Of course, the Scripture says the Lord had chosen Matthias. And so now you have a full complement of twelve apostles again. But from that point on, you never again see a replacement, only that one who left his post, not when they die. But we find here in Acts chapter 1, the qualifications to hold this office. Now Jesus didn't give what His criteria was for choosing these twelve. It was by His grace, we know that, right? It's not because they were all stars, they weren't. They were very common people, fishermen, tax collector, a religious zealot in the ranks. It wasn't because they were so gifted and talented or educated, they were none of those things, but so that God would get the glory and in His own sovereignty He chose these men. And that really is the first thing we see about the criteria of an apostle. He has to be chosen by God. Peter said, Lord, you show us which one you have chosen. It was not that someone had an urge or they had an aspiration to be an apostle. It's that God had chosen them. Because these men were to be ambassadors, not of themselves or their own agenda, but of God's agenda. There's a very wonderful word in our language, language we've almost forgotten. It's called plenipotentiary. It's a person who speaks with all of the authority and is invested with the power of the one who sent him. And so if the President of the United States sends a plenipotentiary to another nation to negotiate a treaty, he doesn't have to fax that treaty back to the President for his signature. He has the authority to sign it and make that treaty himself. That is the authority and power that Jesus invested in these apostles. And, and the second thing we see is that He invested also in them miraculous power. Remember the reason that Jesus performed these miracles, other than the fact that He was compassionate over the sick and hurting, was to verify that He was the Messiah. And so He gave these apostles 
that same miraculous power to verify the gospel was the truth. And then the third thing, they had to be witnesses of the resurrection. That is, they had to be with Jesus from the beginning, with John the Baptist, all the way through the resurrection, so that they could give an eyewitness account of everything that Jesus had said and done. And so this man, Matthias, was chosen. Now that leads us to our third point. Once Jesus has chosen the twelve, he intensely invested in them. It's very difficult to invest in a group this large. Now you can preach a sermon, but to, to really get to know people and live life with them, you have to narrow it down to just a few. And that's what Jesus did. For three and a half years, he lived with these men. He ate meals with them. He traveled with them. He warned them about dangers that they would face when he was gone. He rebuked them about their bickering of who among them was the greatest. And of course, he modeled for them how to live life, how to be compassionate to others, how to be humble, meek, and how to pray. And so I think we could say the greatest investment Jesus made in the apostles was his time. If that's true of Jesus, it's true of us. The greatest ministry investment any of us could make is time. Sometimes we preachers get together. We like to, to give out our statistics, right? We talk about how big our budget is at church, how many of our people go to Sunday school. We talk about the value of our buildings or what new building project we've got underway. Listen, a church's impact for the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your budget or how much your building costs. The greatest impact you can have in ministry is through investment of time. Now I do a lot of funerals here. Sometimes I forget how many. Last week my, my children brought to me a, a, an old church directory that we did here 15 years ago. And we walked through it together. And there was not a page on it that didn't have two or three people who are no longer here, whose funeral we had here. And when I do a funeral here, I sit right back here in a chair until it's my turn to talk. And we have some music and we usually have some eulogies. Friends and family members will file up one by one and say nice things about the deceased. But I have found that almost never does that adult, child, or lifelong friend say something like, I remember the thing they bought me. That almost never happens. Here's what they say. I remember the time we. Right? And so the greatest investment, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, a friend, or just a member of the church that you can make in another person is giving them your most valuable possession, which was your time. Now, Jesus knew his time was short, and so he invested intensely in these men. And let me say this, time invested in ministering to others is never time wasted. It's never time wasted. I don't know about you, but as I get older, it seems like it happens more and more. I get to the end of the day, and I lay my head on my pillow, and I think, boy, I wasted a lot of time today. Sanders, you're not getting any younger, man. Quit wasting your time. And so um, Jesus didn't waste his time. He invested. And, and sometimes we think, well, I don't have anything to offer anybody with my time. Why would they want to spend time with me? Reminds me of an old story. I think it's a true one. There was a man in the, in the 19th century named Charles Adams. And he was a, a regional political figure. And 
he, like a lot of people those days, kept a diary. And one day he entered this into his diary. Went fishing with my son today, dot, dot, dot. A day wasted. His son was a little boy at the time. His name was Brooks. He also kept a diary, and it's still around today. And someone found and compared the two on the same date. Where his father had said, today was a day wasted. Brooks wrote, went fishing with my father today, dot, dot, dot. The most wonderful day of my life. It's all about your perspective. The father thought he was wasting his time while fishing with his son. But his son saw it as the greatest investment he'd ever had. And so I want to ask you two questions today before we leave. Number one is this. If you're a Christian here, who invested time in you? Now, I know at least one person did or you wouldn't be a Christian. Because Paul said that the way people are saved is they hear the good news proclaimed. And how will they hear without a preacher? Someone had to invest some time for you to hear the gospel. And it's very likely because you're still in church that after you were saved, other people continue to invest time in you. Sunday school teachers or RA and GA leaders or some friend who was further along in sanctification, more mature than you. We, we see that pattern with Jesus and we see it with Paul and Timothy and Titus, don't we? That older, more mature pastor encouraging these young men to continue in the faith, knowing that one day he's going to be gone and it's going to be left to them. Just like my friend I saw in the airport was, was glad because he knew his son was going to be able to take that mantle of leadership. And after he was gone, his legacy wouldn't be lost. Right now, we are running with that baton, as it were. But very soon, and let me tell you how soon, within 50 to 80 years at the most, there will likely not be one of us left on this planet. So it's important that we have an exit strategy. That when we're gone, we can take that baton and we have passed it successfully to that next generation. By the way, that's it. That's God's plan. There is no other one. When you think about that, when you pull back and look at it from a distance... All it would take is one generation of Christians failing to pass that baton for all of Christianity to come to a screeching halt. Now we know that's not going to happen because the Bible says when Jesus returns for his church, he's going to have a church to return for, right? That doesn't mean First Baptist Keller has to be here. See, we have to invest in those young people you saw on the screen. And in those children that are going off to camp this week, because we're not going to be here forever. If the Lord doesn't come very quickly, we're going to be gone, and it's going to be up to them to take that message and pass it down to their children and, and their grandchildren. And, and that's worked pretty well for 2,000 years. So my question is, who invested in you? And perhaps some name came to your mind. Why don't you do this right now? Thank the Lord for that person or persons. And even better, if that person or persons are still living, thank them. Write them a note. Call them this afternoon. Thank you for investing in me. Now the second question is this. Who invested in you as a Christian is the first and the second one. Who are you investing in? Sometimes we, we take and take and take and forget to give back. The Apostle Paul quoting Jesus says, it is more blessed to what? 
to give than to receive. Now, we tend to think of that only in terms of money. But remember, we just established the most valuable thing you have to give someone is what? Your time. It is more blessed to give you your time than to receive. Now, think about it, what a blessing you received when people pour into you. It's an even greater blessing when you pour back into other people. I, I think of two or three or four men in very formative years of my life who poured into me. What a, what a blessing that was. But an even greater blessing now as I'm a little older to get to turn around and do that to others. Someone told me years ago, and it's, it's been a, a truism in my life, that every Christian ought to have a Paul in their life and a Timothy in their life. What do they mean by this? Every, every Christian is somewhere along the continuum of sanctification, right? From born again and baby Christian all the way up to full-blown prayer warrior. We're all somewhere in between there. So you need to find someone that you perceive to be more mature, further along in the path of sanctification than you are. And attach yourself to them and learn from them as the apostles learned from Jesus. But at the same time, you need to have someone behind you who's younger in the faith, less mature than you, that you can pour into. And so what happens is that all three of you continue to make progress in sanctification when that happens. And if every member of our church would do those two things, find someone to help them and then find someone to help, I believe the Lord would transform this church in a miraculous way. Let's commit to do that, right? Pray for one another. Pour into one another's life. Give each other our time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. and Lord, we thank you for this testimony of how you invested in these 12 men. And Lord, it wasn't because they deserved it or they were all stars or standouts. They were not. They were common folk like us. But Lord, that, that's so encouraging because you don't need all stars. You just need people who are humble and submit to you. And these men were far from perfect. They made mistakes. They had faults like all of us do. But Lord, you chose them. You reminded them of that. They did not choose you, but you chose them. You molded them and you made them. And every one of them suffered valiantly and bravely. And today, Father, we honor their memory. So, Father, I pray you'd raise up in this generation young people who would take that baton of the gospel and run with it. And then they would, in turn, give it to faithful men who would, in turn, pass it down to faithful men. Lord, I, I thank you for those who have invested in our lives through the years. Father, I pray that you would inspire all of us today to, to find a Christian that we can invest in and give of our time for your glory. Father, by, by doing that, we know we're being Christ-like and that is the aim of our heart, to be more like Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.